Well, if you follow along in the uh, Revelation study with your notes that are handed out at the door when you come in, you're going to be pleased to know that this morning we're going to put the answers up on the screen as we move along. Um, Because I know that we've moved fairly quickly sometimes through this. I get a little carried away, actually, and get kind of wound up. Sometimes I don't use the same words that you have on your sheets. I still have a sheet here that has the answers filled in that I'm going to put down here in front of the podium. But as we move through the study this morning, you'll find it up on the, up on the screen as well. Um, I'm going to start out this morning by just putting an image on the screen. Michael, would you go ahead and put that one up there, that, yeah, that first one? This is going to take us a little bit back historically. I want you just to stare at this and and process what's going on here for just a minute. See if you can depict the action without me talking. Just take a minute to take it in. Looks fairly destructive, doesn't it? You see the smoke rising up? I don't know if you're familiar with this particular painting. It's an artist's interpretation of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. A few decades after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, the Jews continued to rebel against Rome. And by 68 AD, they had started a very aggressive rebellion against Rome. Rome put up with it for just so long. And by 70 AD, they swept in with incredible devastating power. The military might of Rome came against Jerusalem. And what you see here is the destruction of God's temple. The altar people being killed and thrown off from it. The Roman soldiers moved through Israel, not just Jerusalem, but ravaged the country. And they felt the mighty heel of Caesar. And Rome has devastated the country at this point. And from that point forward, Israel never recovered as a nation dispersed. We'll come back to that again in a future study, what happened as a result of that. But in 70 AD, with this fall of Rome against Jerusalem and the destruction that came, along with it is church history, because the Christian church at this point has existed for almost 40 years. Rome has perceived that Christianity is a sect, S-E-C-T, of Judaism. They believed that the two went hand in hand. But about the time Nero came around, Caesar Nero discovered that this sect called Christianity was separate from Judaism. And the Jews, whom they had oppressed, but they allowed to worship God, really wanted nothing to do with the Christians. And the Jews were all too happy to turn the Christians in and let the Romans know, they're not part of us. So under Nero... In Rome, Nero said, there will be no longer any new religions that will be legal in the Roman providences. 
And so Christianity became an outlawed religion. People looked at Christians and what we've just done with the Lord's table, with communion, as being egregious behavior. There was a governor by the name of Pliny, he was a Roman governor, and he complained to Caesar. This is one sentence that he actually wrote. The plague of this superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and rural districts as well. Tacitus, who was a historian that lived at that time, said, they are a class of people hated for their abominations. Well, what were their abominations? They perceived that the Christian church, because they ate of the body of the Lord and drank of his blood, they took those as literal statements, perceived Christians to be cannibals and thought of them as being a pagan religion. And they were horrified by the behavior. Not only that, but they only worshipped one God. They didn't worship all the gods, including Caesar. But they were so effective in the growth of the Christian church that they transformed the Roman Empire. To the degree that there was a statement written by one of the governors in one of the providences in a city in which he oversaw that the Christians had changed the economic climate within the city. This is a statement that he wrote to the Caesar in one of his letters. The temples have been deserted, meaning their temples to their gods, small g, and that those who sold sacrificial animals found few buyers. Can you imagine being a church that would have that kind of an impact on your city? to the point where everyone abandoned their pagan lifestyle, chasing after gods with small g's, to the degree that it actually affected the economics of the city, so that the governor of the city had to write a letter to Caesar. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of impact as a church to transform the economic climate of a city? You're going to see what it costs to have that kind of an impact this morning as we look at the church in Smyrna. So if you open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, you're going to look with me at three very short verses at what happened in the church in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8 takes us back to where we were at, and we find a group of people who are living out their beliefs. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Well, what do we know about the church in Smyrna? They're called the crown of Asia, a beautiful city. The crown of Asia earned its example, its title, because it's gorgeous. Even today, if you click on it, look on Google, you look under the city Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, Izmir, Turkey, you'll find that it's a spectacular, beautiful city sitting on the side of the seashore. There were 11 cities that competed at the time that this letter was written for the right to build a temple to Caesar Tiberius. And Smyrna won the right to build the temple because they were such a beautiful city. Everybody looked to Smyrna as the crown of Asia. They had financial success, incredible success. They had educational success. They contributed much to science and medicine. And so when Rome looked at the 11 most choice cities within their empire to build a temple honoring Tiberius, they chose Smyrna. And this was the place where people could come and worship Caesar. 
So cult worship was at an apex in this city, worshiping Tiberius. And the people who lived there were expected to participate. The temple that they built was standing in John's time when John wrote this note. The city officials in this city were so dedicated to seeing the people of this province worship Caesar that they actually took money from the public coffers, from the public funds, and gave it to people who didn't have enough money to buy offerings for Caesar. That's how compelled they were to make sure that everybody participates. So the pressure to conform to this is enormous, and the Christians are feeling it. And those who refused to participate were considered unpatriotic because they didn't support the role of the government. So Jesus says this in verse 8, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I want you to note the characteristics, first of all, in that statement. John wrote of this in chapter 1, that he's the first and the last. One of the things that you're going to notice as we move through the seven churches is that what he said about Jesus in chapter 1 is reiterated in each of the seven churches. So here to the church in Smyrna, he says, he uses the phrase, the first and the last. Well, why is that really significant to pull out other than the fact that it was in chapter 1? The people in Smyrna, in all of Rome, but specifically in Smyrna, worshipped a god, small g, by the name of Dionysus. And Dionysus was the god of nature. And they believed he had incredible preserving powers. But there was one unique thing about Dionysus. Dionysus was said to have died and then came back to life. Dionysus was the one who was dead and became alive. And so these people were very familiar with this phrase. So Jesus says, I am the one who was dead and came back to life. This is remarkable, and these people understood this. Note how the Lord reveals himself here. I was dead. I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and who lives. Those are really extremes, aren't they? Think about it. I am the first and the last. I'm the one who was dead and am now alive. So Jesus here presents himself as the one who encompasses all the forces and all the events between these two extremes, first, last, everything in between, life, death, everything in between. I've got it all. I understand it all. Look at these extremes with me specifically. The first and the last, what does that mean? The supreme ruler over history. I understand it all. I've been there. I've seen it all. I got it all under control. How important is that, that Jesus reveals himself in this light? The one that we belong to, that we identify, is the Lord of history and the Lord of eternity. That's his first statement. And then he says, who was dead and has come to life. The one who is the first and the last is also the one who has died. Literally, in the Greek says, became a corpse. I was in the morgue. I became dead and came to life again. So to a congregation where death is impending, the one who came back to life again can say, I can identify. No matter what experiences you're going through, our Lord identifies with us. No matter anything that you experience, because you can't experience anything more extreme than life and death, everything in between. And so he makes that statement right up front. So what kind of pressures did these people face? What did they encounter every day? 
I told you that Smyrna is a wealthy city and that they contributed much to medicine and science. Rome benefited, the city of Rome benefited from the investigation and the work that the scientists did in Smyrna. But this emperor worship that took place because they were such a successful city was a result of the fact that Rome provided them much protection. As a matter of fact, because of where they were, economically they were a great target for other countries to want to attack them. And Rome always had their backside, so they were incredibly dedicated to Caesar. And this cult worship was at a really, really high apex in this city to the degree that it was compulsory enough that if you did not participate, you would be executed. You would be put to death. What does emperor worship look like? Let me share with you a quote. This is taken specifically from a document in which it was found in the excavations of Smyrna in which a family, a father and his children, went and made an offering to Caesar, and it's captured here in writing because they had to receive a certificate of compliance. Look with me on the screen at this quote. This is the father writing to the Roman authorities. To those who have been appointed to preside over the sacrifices from Anarius Achaeus, that's his name, from the village of Theo. Exodus, you guys can pronounce that better than me probably, together with his children who reside in the village of Theodelphia, we have always sacrificed to the gods, and now in your presence, according to the regulations, we have sacrificed and offered libations and tasted the sacred things, and we ask you to give us a, certifi a certification that we have done so, may you fare well. This is their response back to him. We, the representatives of the emperor, have seen you sacrificing. And as a result of this, they were awarded this certificate that we just read about, a certificate of compliance. This certificate of compliance allowed a person who lived within Smyrna to actually practice their job, their source of employment. All a person had to do was this. They had to go to Caesar's temple, grab a pinch of incense, walk over to the altar where Caesar's picture, his image was, put it on there and light it and then eat some of the sacrificial food. And then they had to say this, Caesar is Lord. That's what they had to do. And then they'd be given the certificate of compliance. So these people found themselves in a situation, these believers in the church of Smyrna, in which they annually had to either say, Caesar is Lord, or Jesus is Lord. This is the very issue over which Polycarp was burned alive. I gave you the example of that last time we talked about this. Polycarp, at the age of 86, was an individual who was confronted with this exact same situation in which they said, you've got to honor Caesar, or we're going to kill you. Remember the quote that I gave you last time? This is exactly the way he said it. Eighty and six years I have, have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? About four years ago, I'm watching CNN. There's a report that comes on. Two American journalists captured. 
by Al-Qaeda. They caught them and they said to them, we know you are American Christians. We will cut your heads off unless you say Allah is God and you recant your faith in Jesus Christ. This made the news for about three days because everybody wondered what in the world is the reporters going to do? Both men, everybody knew were Christians. Keep seeing the trailer going across the bottom of the screen. American journalists captured Al-Qaeda holding them, made a big deal about it, put it on video because they thought, we'll make examples of these guys. And I'm ashamed to tell you, unfortunately, those two men in an interview after the event said, we knew that we could recant Jesus Christ and come back to him a week later. So we said, Allah is God. And they refused their faith in Jesus Christ just so they could be released. Can you imagine Polycarp hearing a statement like that or these people at this church in Smyrna? There is great cost to belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The forces of evil press against it. So Jesus follows up by saying this in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This gets really interesting theologically what's going on here in this verse. So I'm going to take a minute and just kind of take it apart. Think of this now. The one with flaming eyes who says, I see everything. I know. I understand. The word know, aedo, we talked about last time, means to perceive. I see everything. I know exactly what's going on. He's the one that's looking. And what exactly does he observe about them? What exactly does he see? And I want you to note this. There's no rebuke for this church whatsoever. No condemnation. He just says, I see these things about you, and then there's an ascending scale of tribulation. One, two, and three. Let's look at what they are. The first one, tribulation, is the word lipsis. And this is what it means. You'll see the definition up on the screen. It means pressure to be afflicted, anguish, burdened, persecution, tribulation, and trouble. Well, that gives us a definition, but it doesn't really give us a word picture, does it? This is the word that was used annually when they went out to squeeze grapes to make grape juice or wine. Philipsis was the process by which they crushed the grapes. So here's what Jesus is saying. I know you're being pressed on all sides. Incredible pressure against you. It's a picture of crushing. And the pressure upon them is enormous to the point where, like the picture of the grapes, the juice just squeezes out. This is the result of their possessions being confiscated. Specifically, this church in Smyrna went to these people and gave them the option annually to sacrifice to Caesar. And if they didn't, what they would do is seize their possessions. They would take away their right to work, their source of employment. And so Jesus uses the next word, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. And the word poverty means abject poverty. We read about people in Scripture who are poor. 
talks about the beggars on the side of the street. There's several words that are used to describe it. This particular word, poverty, is the worst of the worst for the people. Tokia, look at the word up on the screen, and this is the definition for it. Beggary, indigence, literally or figuratively, poverty. Now, why is this church so poor, the people of this church, in such a prosperous city? Remember, they're the jewel of Rome. They've got the temple to Caesar. They contribute to medicine and science. Economically, they're very prosperous. But in the middle of it, we've got this church that's so poor, Jesus says, I know your poverty. Why? Because they're enduring economic sanctions. This government has come against them. This is a reference back to the time that the book of Hebrews was written in which land was seized, and the author of the book of Hebrews actually wrote to the believers this verse. You'll see it on the screen, Hebrews 10.34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. See, this is very real for these people. They understand if they don't honor the government, if they don't honor Caesar and worship him, he's going to take everything. But it gets worse. But first look at what Jesus says to them. But you're rich. Even though you're so poor, you're rich. They're wealthy. They live for values that can't be taken away. This is an incredible opportunity for them to glorify God. And so what we find here is a church that Jesus is saying, I know that you've been persecuted. I know that you've been crushed. And I know that you're living in poverty. But you're rich. What are they rich in? They're rich in their spiritual wealth, in their relationship to Jesus, because they've never turned their back on him. He says next, I know the blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Usually this is a word that's used only of God, but this is God speaking to his church. And he says, I know the lies, the maligning, and the slander that have been told about you. This is where it really begins to heat up because they're having lies told about them from people who are supposed to be godly people. Look at the word here first for blasphemy, blasphemia. A vilification, especially, I told you like this in this definition, especially against God, blasphemy is evil speaking. They suffered from lies that are being told about them in public. Well, what's the source of the lies? It comes from people who belong to a synagogue who say they're godly people, but Jesus says they're not a synagogue of God. Christians talked about eating and drinking. They picked up the cup, just like you. They picked up the bread, just like you. And those who were observing it were saying, these people are cannibals. You ought to see them. They meet in secret meetings. Specifically, this church group met at night. And the Romans decided that because they met at night, they must be hatching anti-government plots. And so they continued to conspire against them. So Jesus says, I know the lies that are being told about you. I know the tribulation and the persecution and the poverty. And it's coming from a group of people who say they are Jews. Uh, ethnically, they've descended from Abraham. They can trace their lineage all the way back. They claim descent from Abraham. But they don't have the eyes to see like Abraham, like Paul wrote about in Galatians. 
This is not the seed of Abraham in the way that the spiritual sense. They're proving that they don't have spiritual eyes. So this source actually comes from Satan because Jesus says it's coming from a synagogue of Satan. We're going to look at that a little bit more in depth. So what we find here is Satan attacking from the outside through the government and attacking from the inside from people who say they belong to God, but they don't really belong to God. So he's got multiple pressure coming against them. Isn't that an incredible comfort to you? Think about this from this standpoint. To know that you've got a God, a Christ, who knows what the schemes of Satan are. He knows what he's doing. He sees the tribulation. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Among other things, I know what you're facing. You're facing tribulation and poverty and blasphemy. Think about what this represents. Physical, emotional, and spiritual attack. Does this not have the fingerprints of Satan all over it? This looks just like Satan, exactly what he would do. He would come against the church like this. So what we find here is their struggle is not really against flesh and blood, is it? It's against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. This is a group of people who are confronting Satan right on. So Jesus says they're a synagogue of Satan. And this is the first time in the book of Revelation that you find Satan referred to. And he becomes from this point forward a major player in the book. He's the ultimate source of the persecution. Look at the definition for the name Satan. If you've never looked at it before, understand what the name Satan means. An opponent, especially the arch enemy, the adversary, one who withstands. What does he withstand? The plans of God. What God's trying to do in this direction, Satan tries to be his adversary, and he's an adversary against you. So that's what this story is about, this book, there's three little verses. So Jesus says this point, at this point, after praise, he's given them all this praise, I know your pressure, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. The next thing that comes is a warning. Now in my American mind at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this is time for the great white knight to show up. This is a time for Jesus to rescue because we're used to the movies. These people have endured. It's time to be rescued. Look what happens next. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold. And remember the word behold every time that appears is this. Pay attention. Pay attention. Behold, the devil, the accuser, is about to cast you, some of you, into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. How in the world did this group of people Let's imagine that they're no bigger than us. A group of people sitting like this, and they've just heard this letter read from the messenger of the church. And they've had their jobs taken away. They refuse to honor Caesar, so all their neighbors are talking about them. The people supposedly who are religious in the city, who are supposed to be the children of God, are spreading lies and you sit here in a group like this in a huddle hoping to be encouraged and you hear that some of you 
are about to be thrown into jail. Some of you are going to be persecuted. About to suffer. The word about to suffer, actually constructed in one, speaks to the future. It's going to happen. This is what the king is saying. The devil is about to cast you. This is the first mention of the devil also. So we've got the mention of Satan and the mention of the devil within a couple sentences. Same person, but a different meaning. First mention of him in the book of Revelation. So we find the devil who's called the accuser. First we've got Satan, who is the adversary, who stands against the things of God. And then Jesus uses this word, the accuser. Look at the definition for the devil. Up on the screen, you'll see the word diabolos, a traducer, especially referring to Satan, a false accuser or a slanderer. And what is happening to the church at this point? They're being falsely accused. So we've got Satan standing against them, that's his character and nature, and then as the devil accusing them, accusing them through this false synagogue. And these people are feeling the hate. And the purpose in this is to attempt to get them to renounce Jesus. That's his whole purpose in it. And notice this little detail in that verse. Not all the believers are being thrown into jail. It says, some of you, but the word all of you will be tested by the jailing of some. So let's just imagine here. Let's say one, two, three, four, five of us are pulled out and thrown into jail. Would not all of us feel the weight of that for our faith? That's what Jesus is referring to. Some of you are going to be persecuted for your faith, but all of you are going to feel the weight of it. The emotional connection, the human feeling, that's how this could be. And then he says, so that you will be tested. So the testing is for who? Does God need to learn anything about us? God knows everything about us. So the testing is not for God's benefit. Some of you will be tested, so the testing must be for our benefit, right? What is temptation on Satan's side trying to tempt us is testing on our side, is proving our faithfulness to God. Specifically, what is going to happen to them is completely within the will of God. And that's a theological struggle for people. When they see fellow believers going through very hard times, difficult circumstances to say, man, they must have done something wrong. I mean, there's no way that God would let that happen to them. Really? God does allow some things like that to happen. Very difficult things. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that there's nothing that can happen to us that didn't first get signed off on by God. Look at this verse, and I'm going to share with you, and think in the context of when Jesus was having a discussion with Pilate at the point that he's about to be crucified, and Pilate wants to set him free, and Jesus won't even respond to him. Look at this verse up on the screen, John 19.10. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me 
unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Not speaking of God, by the way. He's speaking of those who betrayed him and handed him over to Pilate. But Jesus himself is declaring this couldn't happen unless God allowed it to happen. So God operates autonomously, not in collusion with Satan, accomplishing his purposes. And then he uses this interesting phrase, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Uh, It's a mistake to make anything mysterious out of this. What we believe is happening here, and most theologians would agree, is that there were 10 Caesars from Domitian to Diocletian, and each one of these Caesars carried out persecution to a greater degree. If you ever want to read the details about what happened to believers during this period of time, pick up the book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you'll see the descriptions for what happened to fellow believers. I'm not going to get into the graphic gory details, but you can imagine what happened to people when they're thrown to the lions and what the thinking is of these Caesars. So you have 10 Caesars from Domitian to Diocletian, And each of those 10 Caesars carried out a greater degree. That could be what this is referring to when Jesus says, tribulation for 10 days. So what we find here are fellow believers going through incredible human suffering. And human suffering like this has always confused believers. Suffering is kind of anticipated for the ungodly, isn't it? For people who live really egregious lifestyles, we look at them and say, well, you know, they're kind of getting paid back what they're due. But when you look at godly people and see them going through suffering, you say, why should the godly suffer? What is to be gained from this? Well, there's several things that come out of Scripture about what believers gain. And first, I'm just going to give you a couple verses as we move through this. And I know if you're keeping notes, you'll be able to fill the blanks in here. But the first one is perhaps it's disciplinary. Perhaps you're being allowed to go through persecution for discipline reasons. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians 11.30 and Hebrews 12.3. But perhaps it's also for preventative reasons. And you can find that in 2 Corinthians 12.7. There's also the demonstration of obedience that you're faithful to what God has allowed you to face. You see that from Jesus himself and in Hebrews 5.8 and in Romans 5.3. But also, this one is huge, to provide a strong testimony for those who are watching. Think of what John and Peter endured in the temple when the Jewish leaders beat them for their faith and they came out rejoicing saying, I can't believe we're worthy of being persecuted for the name of Christ. You think that didn't strengthen the church when they're looking at those two leaders and saying, wow, those guys have a strong testimony. So Jesus wraps it up this way by saying this, and this gets really strong because it's so interesting in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Literally, be faithful. Show yourself to be faithful. Even though Rome is going to imprison you, Know this detail about Rome. When you were put in prison, it wasn't to serve time. It's not like our penitentiaries today. When you were put in prison, it was for the purpose of either finding you guilty or innocent. And if you were found guilty, off with your head. There were no long-term prison systems. 
They just set people free. If they were innocent and if they were guilty, they killed them all. They didn't keep them for long periods of time. So what Jesus is saying is, if you get thrown into prison, the testing of your true loyalty will come forth. It'll really show, and I'll give you the crown of life. Specifically, this particular word is referring to the Stephanos crown. And I want you to see the definition for it because believers will receive at least five crowns that we find in Scripture and we find specifically in the book of Revelation. But let's look first at the definition for the Stephanos crown. It's a prize in the public games and it's, it was a symbol of honor. It was very conspicuous. Everybody knew that they got it. It was quite elaborate and it was always given to the person who had achieved the victory. So the Stephanus crown was given to the victor. And Jesus is saying, if you are faithful to me, I'll give you the victory crown, the victory crown of life. So let's look at what these five crowns are that you can receive. The first one is the crown of exaltation. And the next one is called the crown of righteousness. And the next one after that is called the crown of life. And then there's the crown of imperishability. And then there's the crown of glory. And if you didn't get the, um, there's verses that go along with that. I don't know if they're in your notes or not, but they're on this particular copy up here that support each of those five verses. What I found as I've worked through the book of Revelation is that every time a crown is referred to, it's referred to something that is incredibly beautiful and it's made of solid gold. So if you want to work for long-term gold investments in your portfolio, here you go. This is the crowns. Look at this definition that James uses, James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Specifically, the crown of life is given to those who were persecuted, like Stephen, who was stoned for the faith, given to martyrs. So this particular crown doesn't refer to royalty. It's not like a diadema like Queen Elizabeth or Prince William will one day wear. This is a crown that's awarded. It's a victory crown. And Jesus himself will give it to you. Look at some of the references from Revelation at crowns when it refers to the crowns that Jesus wears. Revelation 6.2, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And now from Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This gives us incredible confidence when we see our king ruling like this and saying, I know everything that's going on. I see all of Satan's schemes. I see the way he's working against you. I know what he's trying to carry out. But if you hold on, if you will be faithful, I'll give you the crown of life. And it's a beautiful crown. But something very interesting happens. The first and the last says, I'm in control of everything, but I'm going to allow you to go through these hard times. So he says three things to encourage us. Very specifically, if you ever have to face this kind of persecution, maybe you face it on the job. Maybe you face people lying about you for your faith. Or you faced economic sanctions. You faced loss. 
because of your witness for Christ. You know that you were up for that promotion and you weren't given it because of your faith in Christ. You're not sure, but you suspect it. Jesus gave us three ways to be confirmed, to be confident that we're undergoing this. And he says, first of all, I want you to know you're going through this because you're going to be tested. It's a testing for your benefit. It's not so God will learn things. It's to test you so you can be encouraged. And remember, it's only for a limited period of time. This is the other component of 10 days. Anytime the phrase 10 days is used in Scripture, it always refers to a very brief period of time. From Daniel all the way through the book of Acts and then in the book of Revelation. You find it referred to and it always remains a limited period of time. And third, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you a reward, the crown of life. That's the promises from our God. So he wraps it up saying this in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear comes right out of all the other letters, every one of the seven letters to the churches. He who has an ear, listen, do you have an ear? Can you hear me today? Are you listening to this? Because this is what he says. This is very personal. I'm now speaking to you individually. He, personal, who has an ear, singular, says to the churches, plural, meaning Jesus is saying, I want you to listen to this. Work towards being the overcomer. You remember the definition for overcomer from a couple weeks ago? Nikao, from the word Nike? Look at the definition again. The conqueror, the one who overcomes to prevail, to get the victory. Because these people had put their faith in Jesus Christ, they had not backed away from him. He calls them a nikao before the word Nike was ever popular. You're the overcomers. And if you hang on, you'll get the crown of life. So the motivation to become an overcomer is that the consequences are eternal because it refers to this word here, the second death. What is the second death? I'm going to expand on that a little bit later. What Jesus is saying is, don't value your physical life so much that you neglect the eternal life and you miss what I'm calling you to. Look at this description from Luke 12. This is Jesus talking to his followers about the second death. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We're going to get into the second death much more in detail as we move through the book of Revelation. But this refers to the first death, the death of the body, versus the second death, which is the death of the soul. And the death of the soul, the second death, absolutely, unequivocally separates you eternally from God. That's where unbelievers are cast. The second death is the lake of fire. And we don't want to go there. It is the death of the soul. And that is the scariest place. That's the one to worry about. 
That's the one to be afraid of. It's the place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. That's what Scripture says. The lake of fire, the second death, that was prepared for the demons. Man wasn't intended to go there. But for those who reject Christ, that's where they end up. And that's the second death that Jesus is referring to. So that's why he says, listen to what the Spirit says. Get it in your heads. Pay attention. Get it down. Jesus is saying, if you'll listen to what this letter is saying, if you'll trust me in times of pressure and persecution, I'll give you the gift of eternal life, and you'll be kept safe forever from the second death. So when Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha, and he's got this point where he's going to resurrect Lazarus, he brings them to the point where they're having a discussion at the cemetery. And they're talking about the first death and the second death. And Mary and Martha probably don't even understand what's going on at this point. But Jesus is having this theological discussion before he ever raises Lazarus from the dead. Look up on the screen at John eleven twenty five 25 from this verse. You'll get exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Can you imagine if your brother is in the grave and you're having this discussion in the cemetery? Now think about what you just learned. I am the first and the last. I am the one who is dead and now alive. Jesus is saying, even though you're dead, you're not really dead. Even though you die, you didn't really die. And then he says to them, do you believe this? I'm thinking they had a dumb and dumber look on their face at this point. What? What are you saying? Do you see the God of extremes in this? First and the last, everything in between. Death and resurrection, everything in between. It doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter the persecution. It doesn't matter the economic loss. Sure, it hurts. And that's why Jesus said, I know what's going on. I know what's happening to you. And it might get worse but I'm the overcomer, and so you can be the overcomer. This is what Paul rejoiced about. Remember the verse that he wrote down for us in Romans chapter 8? You'll see it up on the screen, Romans 8, 38. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Yes! That's what amen means. Yes! Nothing can separate us. We have reason to celebrate. That's why we have the communion table. We celebrate. Nothing can overcome us. This is our God saying, remember, remember what was written. Heed these writings in the book of Revelation. Pay attention. So I have a question for you from the very first day we started this study. You get to leave with this question in your mind. How are you doing at making that list of the things that you're supposed to obey? That's what I said on the very first Sunday as we move through the book of Revelation. Look for the things that you're supposed to obey according to what God commanded us to do. So a reminder for you, if you haven't been doing that, go back to it. Look at things like this. 
become the nakao, the overcomer, so that you can be a strong witness to everyone watching you. Neither life nor death, neither demons nor angels can separate you from the love of God, which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are just filled with emotion at this moment, um, mostly joy, just for the incredible reminder that Paul wrote down. Nothing can rip us out of your hands. We want to be faithful to you, Father. We want to be known as overcomers, nakao. And so we ask that you would strengthen us as men and women, students, children in this room who represent you every week. We represent you as we take communion. We stand before you, we sit before you, asking that you would work through us to make us bold on your behalf. When the opportunity comes, Father, to represent you to those who think contrary about who you are, give us the confidence to speak on your behalf. Father, thank you for this study this morning, those three simple little verses to the church in Smyrna that you've preserved for 2,000 years. We ask that you would apply it deeply to our heart. Go with us now as we leave this room. We ask these things in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.